0: Welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast where we are practicing the art of kindness and civil discourse and authenticity and storytelling. Our goal is to foster a healthy dialogue about race relations in our community. We seek common ground for common good and hope these conversations encourage you to build authentic relationships outside of your race or comfort zone. This season of the podcast is made possible by the generous support of of the Oklahoma City Black Justice Fund. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma
1: podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. I'm Taylor Doe, and I'm excited to be here for a special series of episodes where we specifically talk about the dynamics of race and relationships between funders and practitioners in the nonprofit community. That might sound familiar if you've heard our interview a few episodes back with Scotia Moore talking about the loom. And guess what? For four episodes, Scotia herself is co-hosting with me and giving Wayland a little break. And so welcome, Scotia.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, we're calling these episodes loom-focused episodes. And we'll be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is weaving a community of care and belonging So that we can be generous together. For these episodes we will be bringing four guests who have been a part of this movement and uh, we'll dive deeper into some of the topics that are covered on a storytelling project which is a digital journal and you can find more information about that at loom-woven.com.
1: And you can also find out a little bit more context and information from the episode that we did specifically with scotia about the loom that was this year this was episode 56 you can scroll back in your feed to find that but for now we'd like to welcome our guest today gerald scott welcome
2: thank you for coming It's
1: an honor and fun being
3: here i'm looking forward to it. so
2: gerald you have quite a bio so (laughs) i'm not going to read through your bio I'm going to let you introduce some of the things that you're up to and have mm-hmm. done and what your passion is. But I want to say one of the things about Gerald, this is like the Scotia version of Gerald, yeah. um, is that he is he has such a fathering heart. Like he has a desire for um, caring for people and for challenging them to be their best. I, I've got, I've been on the receiving end, just like, you need to Growth remember. Growth It always has sis <laughs> with it, but you yes. need to remember, sis, what your role is. Right. And just spurring right. me on to good works and love. Um, and just, and I keep hearing, like, I recently heard another story from another colleague um, who had another conversation with you where she just left so encouraged and challenged to be her best and to give um, generously so and that's what you do that is who you uh, are um, too kind. to me and to so many others so would you share about who you are Gerald you can tell us about your family and then some of your many um, ways that you're impacting our community
3: I would love to and I, I hear the many and all of that it makes me feel old but that's good <laughs> it's good to still be here um- Well, you know, I'm from Northeast Oklahoma City, born and raised. Uh, I was born in North Creston Hills. And when you think about North Creston Hills, I've heard some of your podcasts. So you have several people from your podcast are from North Creston Hills. From a very small community that's loving. And if you just kind of close your eyes and think, I'm from like the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So uh, my background is very humble. You know, and uh, grew up just in a very, very close knit family, close knit environment, and that was my beginning. Uh, from there, I learned a lot of humility. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think to say more about me uh, is to say something about my influences. And one of the persons that influenced me growing up and is a lot has a lot to do with who I am now is someone, an actor, because we're influenced by what we see, right? Uh, and that is Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up in a time where people really managed their conduct and managed themselves and carried themselves in a way that was very humble, you know, not a lot of attention. That's a lot about who I am. I don't, I don't really seek attention. I've never uh, desired it. I just am a person that loves people, loves God. And just loves to get in and commit to the things I believe in, and that's a lot of that's a lot a lot of where I'm from. I'm a product of northeast side of town where people contributed, people worked together, people shared ideas and their and 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 shared their sorrows and so from that, I just grew uh, uh you know went to high school in Northwest class uh, from high school, I went to Central State, where it turned to UCO later. Yeah. Uh, so I actually graduated from UCO. Uh, always interested in being involved with other guys and men, so I pledged a fraternity. I'm a fraternity guy. Uh, Kappa Alpha Psi, for those of you who don't know. And uh, that's who I am. I am married to the most wonderful woman on earth uh, for 17 years. Who's has uh, blessed us with two beautiful young ladies. I'm um, a dad of two beautiful daughters and uh, just loving life and enjoying being a part of this community and serving. Serving is the heart of who Gerald Scott is.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: That is facts. Uh, <laughs> Gerald and I have interacted in different projects on the East side and uh, just, that was a, I can just echo everything that you said there. Um, the way you carry yourself uh, in and through spaces is something that I've looked up to for a long time. So I just thank you. thank you for that before we get into it. But I would love to get your thoughts on on this thing. In the intro and throughout Generous Together, the yeah. idea was to bring together and build relationships between funders and practitioners. And we use this word practitioners, and I'd really love to break that down with you, since you are one, uh, and have some thoughts around that idea. I'd love for you to share with our listeners of what is a practitioner? What does it look like? What are some responsibilities? What what are your ideas and thoughts? Give us um, kind of a look into what is a practitioner?
3: That's an excellent question. You know, uh, being a part of this great pilot, Generous Together, you know, we matched, and the idea was to get uh, funders matched with practitioners, then when you really start looking at what a practitioner is, you know, you're talking about a professional, you're talking about someone that has sort of mastered their craft, but a practitioner is also someone that is very disciplined in what they do. Uh, They are so disciplined that uh, they have mastered the ins and outs of it. So when you say practitioner, you're talking about somebody that has really on a regular uh, and that and that time frame can be, you know, five, 10, you know, many years that they have mastered their craft. They've mastered what they've done uh, and they have done it because they've worked on it and worked at it for days, weeks. Months and years. It's not just. It's a little different than than just being professional, right? Because we're we we're professionals in what we do, but a practitioner has mastered their craft, and they uh, they know the ins and outs of how it works, how how to measure it, and things of that nature. So it takes time. Yeah. It takes time to become a practitioner. Uh, it takes time. It takes. Uh, someone that has they can tell you can write a book on what they do. That's a little different than just than the amazing opportunity of being a professional, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. But a practitioner is a disciplined individual. They're very disciplined in what they do, and they're able to teach others to be disciplined and to master and multiply. And reproduce in that same craft. That's a practitioner. Mm-hmm. and that has a little heavier weight when you look at it from that standpoint.
2: Yeah, because it, it, when you say that, it makes me think of a spectrum of like, well, here's an, here's something in my city or here's, it, it's in my community. I'll go volunteer. Right. There's volunteer, then there's professional. Okay, well, I will do this, you know, on yes. another level. But a practitioner, I think of a doctor sometimes when I think of this term. And it does secondary. take a long time. It takes in-depth study and it takes um, commitment over a, a long spectrum of seasons um, because our work often has these seasons. There are these seasons of great activity externally and then this great activity of internal work whether personally or organizationally and then you know there might be a season where we we might need to rest or as a team we need to rest or we need to refocus or we need to rebrand or whatever the thing is um for the next season so that's that's interesting how would you describe you know as you're looking at that process of mastery and that long-term commitment and that in-depth study, what are, um, what's some of the fruit of that? And then what are some of the challenges of, of being a practitioner?
3: That's a great question. I want to, I want to back up though to something you just said uh, about uh, like a doctor, Mm -hmm. you know, the root word of practitioners practice. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: It's just like you're going to practice. Like you're going to, uh, you become a doctor and you do, or, or let's say, even if you're a uh, a counselor, and you have your, or you're doing a practicum, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know you're putting into practice, deep practice, four years, eight years that work, mm-hmm. so that you have mastered that, and that, and that you're safe to demonstrate that work, right? Because you have, because you have mastered that work, mm-hmm. and you're licensed to, or or given the seal to go out. The, the the thing about being a practitioner, some of the, to your question, is that it involves uh, a deep sense of vulnerability, mm. being teachable, understanding when you may have missed it. I'll give you an example. I worked in a halfway house mm. for one year.
2: Tell us what what is that.
3: So halfway house is when someone has been uh, released or stepped down from minimum security. Mm-hmm and you have, let's say, 170 days or so left on your sentence, and you step down from minimum to, uh, if you're approved, to a halfway house setting where you finish the rest of your sentence in that halfway house situation. There in that situation you continue to do uh, you know, things that are set on your chart to, to do. Uh, you have to get a job. You have to continue not to get any write-ups. Mm-hmm you know uh maintain your behaviors uh doctor eyes cross the T's. Yeah. okay and so in that in that setting for example i had 82 men on my caseload okay so here's where the practice part then when you think as you gave in a good example about a doctor mm-hmm. and who sees different patients so as a practitioner you come in and you have men come in they have different levels of their sentence some may have been in the system 15 years. Some may have been in there as low as five. But you have to know where each one is in their, in their institutionalization and know how to map out a plan for them. That is a time to study. Mm-hmm. That is a time to get disciplined in what you do. That is a time to ask questions, which we'll get into that when we talk more about Generous Together. But you learn that. You're actively engaged with someone you're learning and you can't cookie cut because just because you have 82, that doesn't mean they're all the same, right? And so you, so in that you learn and you get uh, factors, you know, like we call them maybe a scores, the adverse childhood experiences. And so a practitioner will in that setting, look at and ask questions and find out what are the factors? How did this person arrive there to understand where they're going from here. And so that's a good glimpse into how you become a practitioner, mm-hmm. you know, to get that discipline and to learn how to do so because one of the pitfalls is biases. Mm-hmm. You can be very biased or or uh, typically in that field, you know, uh, a person can think, well, you think the worst of people. You you start labeling uh, you, you you can become unfair and not understanding, or have empathy for how a person got into this issue, which is just the same as a doctor, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So so it's the development of empathy, mm-hmm. uh, the understand having a deep understanding and a shared understanding that that eventually causes you to be trusted, right? And so that's an entire process. So to be committed to that process and and not write yourself off because of your judgments, that that's a discipline and a skill. And it takes interpersonal skills to do that. And so all of that, you, you craft that, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it is, it is, it's risky. It's very risky. So that, but it's rewarding if you've done it well. And, I've been very fortunate to do it very well mm-hmm. for many years.
2: Yeah, and and you have seen that impact in the lives of others, even as you see how that interaction is impacting and transforming and growing you personally. Um, so that is that's good. What about um, the personal side? So you have the external side of it, of the the work and the learning. Um, how what's it look like when you come home (laughs) from because one of the things that my friend uh kim bandy who will be featured in our next interview um i learned this term uh probably as she was identifying maybe some of it in me (laughs) um but vicarious trauma like you experience um the pain of others when you're when you're a practitioner, you get close. You could catch it. You yes. know what I mean. You could, if a doctor is in a room with someone with a communicable disease, they could. That doctor can catch it. Or if that patient is in the room with a doctor who lacks awareness or sensitivity to the symptoms of their illness, um, you know, they will suffer. They they could suffer from that. So but what does it look like when you come home? Because you don't ever take the, the cape off, Gerald. <laughs> you don't <laughs> I don't, you don't know about that. You don't take it I mean you don't <laughs> take the weight right. of being a practitioner off. Right. You you think of the people that you're right. serving and loving. Um, right. you think of, oh man, I should have done this differently or I should have done this better, or oh we need this and or this the need is huge and the supply is limited. How does that look when you get home um, or into your car uh, after you've walked away from that professional practitioner environment? <laughs> what does that look like?
3: That's so good. That's rich, and you're you're so right. And that's and that speaks to the risks mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's it's so easy if you're not careful uh, to to set some safe boundaries mm-hmm. uh, and really just understanding that. It's it's understanding environment, you know that this is consistent with the environment, and so you know that. So it's really going into the field, just sort of understanding what it looks like every day, and what, and the key word in all of what you're saying is safety. Mm-hmm. You know, it really you have to uh, work really hard to make sure you maintain emotional. Safety, you know, that's what's happening even on our jobs today. If you listen to, uh, so so the scenario you painted, uh, that's consistent with our jobs today. You know, a lot of statistics now say that people want to go into an environment where they feel psychologically safe, mm-hmm. to be their real selves, to not be intimidated, uh, to not be at fear, uh, not to, to be able to express themselves. And so when you're in that environment, you 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 take on the you have to be safe. Mm-hmm. You have to set boundaries. It does grind. Yeah. It does wear on you uh, to hear people uh, humanity at its lowest. You know to see to see in this case justice served individuals uh, that you take to their parole board hearings not be paroled, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. make it uh, or to go back to minimum. It does wear on you. Yeah. And so, uh, so you have to make sure that you have some self-care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, it would take a lot of faith to be in this field, mm-hmm. which I believe that if you are a practitioner, I believe you've been called to yeah. that. And so that's where you really get a chance to find out if a person is really called to this field or if this person just took this job because or took this uh, took this chance because it was a job available
0: right.
2: and it
3: was a step from let's say in this case college to your first job mm-hmm. if you're called to it then uh it is part of you mm-hmm. and so being part of you 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 implement all those things so you don't take it home do you take it home absolutely <laughs> being truthful you do you take it home Uh, And then if you're married as I am, you get a chance to hear, you know, honey, uh, you should leave work at work.
0: Yes.
3: (laughs) You know, and have safe conversations and then allow your spouse or your significant other Mm -hmm. to be able to speak into your lives. You put other people around your lives that can help you Mm -hmm. and to help ground you. uh, And you read, you pray, you do all of these different things Mm -hmm. to take care of yourself so that you can go back in and be your best self the next day. But you do take it. Obviously, you do. But you just work real hard and make every effort you can to make sure you keep those uh, in your circle safe Mm -hmm. by by not, you know, taking it and releasing it and expecting for them to hold your pain and hold uh, what you're dealing with every day, Mm -hmm. you know, to know how to best channel that so that they're safe too. It's a, it's a, and that too is a discipline. And that's part of being a practitioner is being disciplined.
2: So Gerald, you talked about being disciplined. And I think when you are a person who juggles as many things as you do, like I'm like low level circus clown compared to you. I'm like, (laughs) I've got, you know, maybe six, seven, eight, I don't know. But you have like 15 things that you're, you're trying to keep up. Um, Tell me what, uh, what all you're doing, like help our, our audience to know yeah. what practitioner is applied to. That's so good. That's foundation, good. your other work.
3: Yeah, that's good. So uh, first and foremost, I, I work for Metro Technology Centers, and I am a non-discrimination Title IX coordinator. Mm-hmm. As I was sharing right. earlier, uh, that's, a, that's a big task. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is working specifically to make sure that our district is safe and compliant to the federal law of Tylenol, so that's hat number one. Yes. Uh, hat number two, I would say, is uh, really ministry, mm-hmm. honestly, and actually, that's number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been in ministry for 24 years, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, licensed, uh, ordained, and commissioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So within the body of Christ, so that's really hat number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, since I'm going kind of a little out of order. Uh, Star Foundation is uh, a nonprofit organization that I've been a founder and executive director of for the last 12 years, and it is a uh, 501c3 that works with justice served individuals, which is one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about justice serve uh, uh, youth and adults. Mm-hmm. So, besides that, of course, I serve on boards and get involved in a lot of activities as a you lot just to to, a uh, lot of counseling yeah. <laughs> to people like me. Well, and others. you know, I, <laughs> and Gerald, what do I do? <laughs> I, I, you know, in that, you know, I've really been a spiritual dad, you know, to many, uh, and I'm, and I'm very honored by that place. Um, and so I do a lot of that. In fact, at work, they call one of my chairs the chair there's one chair. <laughs> the chair. There's one chair that everyone knows. It is the chair, and uh, and sometimes uh, one will go be leaving and others coming in to. Uh, it's my turn, you know. Mm-hmm. So I do get a chance, and it's I'm very fortunate in that, you know. Thank
2: you. Thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah,
1: thank you. Can you share a little bit more and break down the word justice served for people who don't know what that means? what um, we know that's a passion of yours in, in different contexts, right? From even you and I've worked with juvenile, with, with young people who have, who have uh, interacted with the, the justice system. And then as you kind of mentioned all ages um, and how that affects family and all of that. So would you kind of give us uh, a, a definition of what you mean when you say um, justice served? Right. That's great. So, and we have worked together a lot
3: in yeah. the, in the community together um, so when a person has uh, been um, convicted or adjudicated of a crime, and let's say it's, let's say it's a, a teenager, and, and they have been, uh, found themselves uh, in a situation where they're in the Oklahoma County Juvenile Bureau system. They're an adjudicated youth, which means that they have a probation officer. They, have, they go in to see the judge on a regular basis and that they have several offenses that they're answering for that is justice served. And that's the same as with an adult in the same breath uh, because justice has been served for that individual's committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, when, you, when we think about justice served individuals, uh, just the language of using justice served is something that we've started moving towards versus convict, uh, inmate, which have negative connotations. We say that they've been served justice. So with that, um, our work is to see a person as an asset versus a deficit. Because typically when you say justice serve, uh, for the majority of the population you think this person deserves it Mm -hmm. and this person's committed a crime and they deserve what they're getting. From a practitioner or mentor standpoint, or those that work with just-served individuals, you think about, okay, this is a person that has committed a crime, and so what are the layers? How did they get here? How did this happen? And so you start looking at it from more of a practitioner's standpoint of how did they get in the system and, uh, and providing those asset-based programs for them to get what they need to get out and to hopefully not have recidivism going back in. So that's what we mean. And as you, this, everyone pretty much knows, Oklahoma is very high ranking, you know, with those who have been uh, incarcerated, you know, especially women. At one point, we led the world in incarceration. Hmm. So we have a lot of opportunities
1: here to work with people that have been served justice. Uh, we, could, we could definitely go down um, that conversation. I do want to pivot a little bit. You were featured in The Loom. You wrote an article. I mm-hmm. want people to go read it. So I just want to kind of talk about the theme and the heart yeah. behind it and maybe some of the weight. So if you, if you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to kind of give a high-level overview of the thoughts and ideas um, and feelings and emotions behind that article you wrote. Uh, and then would love to unpack it. Absolutely. Great question.
3: So the, the theme of the article, of course, uh, was, was faithful vitality. And for those of you that I hope will read it, uh, and Scotia's doing a phenomenal job with the loom, by the way. Yes. And, and those of you, you need to you know, take a look at it and read it and follow up and get to know more about it. So the whole idea and the theme is that those uh, uh, nonprofit uh, leaders like myself, Star Foundation is a nonprofit, that many times there are there's so many layers to being an ex, uh, in this case an executive director of a nonprofit, especially if you're a uh, if if you're not one of the major, let's say you're a minor, a nonprofit, even though you've been doing the work for 12 years, uh, however, oftentimes you're not in a space where you're connected to in this case funding streams that help you in the about ba- into to undergird you and help you uh, to deliver the work that you do but you still have a family you still have kids you still have a wife you still have a full-time job that pays your bills uh, and that sustains you but yet you're still doing you're still doing the work and you're trying to make a difference in this community so how do you balance that and how do you how do you actually get that nonprofit uh, in a uh, in a situation where it's being viewed and being understood by others uh, all at the same time. And then you're managing staff, managing volunteers, managing events, uh, overseeing curriculum development, all of that going on. And at times uh, it seems thankless. At times there's just such a struggle that you wonder why, why am I in it? You know, why am I still doing this? You know, um, And you at times feel overlooked in all of those different thoughts of humanity that come alongside that. And so the article was just in light of all of those circumstances I just painted that we as nonprofit, especially African-American leaders, are still expected as well as everyone as a nonprofit but in particular, African Americans uh, are expected to be strong, to be pliable, to be able to still do what you do with the smile, with confidence, and uh, that 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 people know you for, uh, that you are respected in the community. You're still expected to do the work, and how do you do that? How do you how do you balance that? And so that's what it's about. The article is about being faithful in all the complexities that are involved? How do you go home to your family? What do you, what about your full time when you're working full time and then you have four activities outside of your full time work for that week? How do you balance family? How are you strong when your children, your teenagers need you, you know? So, and your wife needs her husband, right? And so the conversation is, you do it because you're called. You do it because you're driven. Uh, you do it uh, with hopes that you will connect with those that will appreciate and come to understand and come alongside and, and hopefully provide you with a, uh, the necessary uh, funding and support that you need to continue. So you're driven by hope. You're constantly driven by hope and, uh, and driven to be positive. And to be strong, even though it is difficult and tough, uh, so that's why uh, Generous Together has been such a great journey, because we have a chance to have those conversations and to be very um, transparent and vulnerable, you know. And so it's just been it's been it's been great. But that's what the article is about. But you continue to do it because of the of the high calling that you believe is the reason why you even founded the organization to begin with.
2: That's so good. The last uh, issue, the volume of the loom, uh, the overarching theme for that was honor. Yes. And um, one of the things that we focused on, there were several, but your article spoke to the need, honoring the need to make a difference and make a living. So you just told us that you have, a full-time job. <laughs> you also have a nonprofit. You lead a nonprofit. You do extensive ministry work. And then I mentioned all the counseling that you give yeah, right, <laughs> oh, just right. because you love us. Yeah, right, right. And so one of the things that um, someone from the funding community t- spoke to uh, in also in that issue of the loom was just the – the surprising awareness that came out of the interactions um, that many black nonprofit leaders are also working a full-time job and maybe doing some other, you know, side hustles and gig economy (laughs) kind of stuff. So there's like, there's this piece of having to make a living, you know, cover your bills and have, you know, your health needs taken care of and insurance and whatever um, that may not be being met by this community transforming work that you're doing. Right. And, so, and that isn't always something that I think many uh, from the philanthropic community um, have been aware of. And I think it's becoming, um, the awareness of that is increasing. But I think yes. experiments like Generous Together bring us in proximity with one another where we're able to see that. Right. and see what it looks like. And so thank you for participating in the experiment. But also you shared some very vulnerable and challenging things in that article. I which
3: did. I was like. They were very vulnerable. They were vulnerable. Yeah.
2: and But it's almost like some of us have got to take the risk of pulling the curtain back. Um, our, our last interviewer talk interviewee talked about um, – like this world of funding being like this mystical hidden, you know, in a fog kind of thing. <laughs> right. But I also think it it plays the other way. Like what your life and my life and Tito's life looks like day to day as we're doing this practitioner thing isn't always seen. And the challenges That's of true. like I've got bills. My kids have, you know, need my kids all have giant feet so you have to (laughs) I'm (laughs) shorty in the family and I'm like 5'10". So, you know, we're having we have expenses and we have all of these things and what you talked about as a practitioner the time the meticulous faithfulness that that practitioner is because really they serve as like this bridge between the resources, you know from the some of them are funding resources and then the community. And so that person, like the bridge isn't an idea. It's not a program. It's a right. person like right. Gerald Scott right. who helps to bring those resources to right. bear within the community. But often the culture within the funding community is we don't want to fund overhead. We want to jump over that person Um who is actually bringing our resources to bear in the community right. and just fund outcomes within the community. But there isn't necessarily this awareness that the practitioner needs to be scooped up in, in the funding priorities Yes, and cared for as well. So can you speak to any of that or how some of your interactions either with generous together or just in general, um, give us a better idea of what that could look like. Maybe some of those conversations, like what, what would be helpful for you? Because you're taking care of so many people right, in your home, outside of your home, in my home, (laughs) (laughs) but how, how, how can you be served? You have Mm. such a servant's heart, but how can we show honor to the practitioner by being aware of, the need to heal the healers and to serve those who serve? How can we do that? Wow.
3: Wow. That, that is, that's, that's a phenomenal question. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's so many layers to that. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, um, let me just, let me just say this. Um, one of the things that when you're, when you're in this space, you know, it's not going to be easy. I mean, and it, there has to be, Within us, this great awareness of of the challenges, it, we just and we have to just have a real healthy conversation with ourselves yeah. about those challenges and be and be real about it, you know. And in saying that, uh, let's let's talk about in 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 the sense this work, justice. Everyone does not have the same mindset or heart or what that sounds like. Into, you know. Taylor's question you know everyone doesn't have that Mm -hmm. this the same empathy you know in that conversation when it comes down to because many will just say well okay that's what they deserve Mm -hmm. so then how do you attract funders or how do you attract people to connect to something that maybe their idea is that they're getting what they deserve so uh, how do you do that it all goes back to belief in the work, and that's why. That's why uh, I cannot. I cannot say enough. It has to be a call. It has to be something that you're called to, and driven by, and being resourceful for. Mm-hmm. You know. So, you know, one of the things, one of the challenges, I think, is knowing how to scale, how to how to connect. Uh, I think for for many in the nonprofit world in this world, there's there is almost the temptation to get in tum- a t- have a tunnel vision toward what needs to be done, and not really understanding possibly uh, all of the great resources and relationship building of what that looks like because we're you know like my articles uh, was referencing the agricultural image of an ox you know always down you know looking towards the ground and 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 moving methodically and strongly throughout that's how we sort of move but we have to know how to look around to accept help and seek help mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. and to to know where the help is mm-hmm. and i think that that takes really some soul searching to say i have to maybe expand my widen my gaze Mm -hmm. you know i need to widen my gaze to think outside of my streams uh and think outside of maybe even my community because that thinking within just within my community limits many of us instead of thinking there's a vast community out here there's many people out here i have to be willing to take meetings Have coffee, have lunch with people I don't know. uh, And that's a risk because many don't want to do that, Mm -hmm. especially if it's outside their people group. And so, you know, it's being courageous, Mm -hmm. it's being being relentless and being courageous and taking full opportunities to know there's people out here that, that. So, how can you help? Second part of your question. Once we start learning. What someone does, once we have a grasp of what their mission is, connect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Make the connection. Yeah. You know, pick up the phone. I constantly, once I learn.
2: Are you speaking to the funding community to, to make that connection?
3: The, well, the funding community, but not just putting it on the funders. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to the nonprofit world mm-hmm. as well. You know, make that connection. Give example. We have, we have a, a person that works with me uh, and works in culinary, and a uh, great artist, amazing artist. you'd love her. In fact, I need to connect you. Uh, and shared with me her dream and her vision to have this great art studio. And so I sat down at the table there, let me sort of like generous together. Let's have a conversation. Explain to me, what does that look like? What do you want to do with this? What's your mission? have conversations with another non-profit person or a budding nonprofit person, right? And so once we see where a person is, help them, provide them, keep your ears open, keep your heart open, keep your mind open to where someone is in their journey and connect to them, provide for them. And so being the people person I am and the, uh, Father figure, I am. I just put her under my wing, mm-hmm. you know, and started making these connections for her. Uh, she has a nonprofit now. She has a five hundred one c three. She's put on art exhibits. Uh, she's done murals at schools. Uh, she has really grown in what she's doing. Others need to do that. Mm-hmm. Others need to be sensitive. So it's being not just the funders, but it's it's the, it's thinking. About a shared experience, it's it's thinking in an other-oriented type mindset. It's not just about my nonprofit. I'm sensitive about what you're doing, TDO, about what you're doing, Scotia, and I have some knowledge of what you're doing. And so, let me make a connection for you. Let me, you know, let me help you. Let me assist you, and then that grows. And that could include, yes, funding, sure, uh, grants. But, you know, a lot of times when we have these conversations, it's very interesting because I feel that we're leaving a lot out,
2: mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I've,
3: and I've said this in our times with Generous Together, mm-hmm. is that there's more to it than just funding, yeah. right?
2: So it's my relational network. It's my experiences. Yeah. It's my knowledge base. It's a whole lot more than just the transaction of funds.
3: Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's, it it is, it it may have to do with board building your board. Mm -hmm. It may have to be as simple as articles of incorporation. It may have an admin element. It may have an operations element. Mm -hmm. It, it may have a structural element in terms of business and business practices and business plans. It, it, there's a, there's a vast number of uh, factors involved but we have a tendency to only talk about funding right. when we there's so many other areas of business. So part of what your question involved, what do we do? In our last Generous Together, which was phenomenal because we had to sit down and, and ask uh, and had three questions, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I've been very sensitive about for years is that I think we need to have more uh, for nonprofits. We need to have more of a hub mentality. You know, we need to have let's get let's get three, four, uh, five, maybe nonprofits in a room and let's let's develop them. Let's match funders or philanthropists with those nonprofits so that they're having ongoing conversations. And and I'm not talking to think tank. I'm talking you know, about uh, maybe a consortium. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking, you know, about uh, maybe developing, how do I take these three and develop what they need? How do I match committed fund uh, philanthropists that may be interested in those three areas, mm-hmm. right, uh, and those three nonprofits, and how can I help them scale?
2: Love it. I love it. How do we
3: do that? How but it takes commitment. It does. It takes a commitment and that commitment is based off the time we spend understanding and the risk we're, we're willing to take and then the ability to say let's do a pilot, right? Let's do 1 to 3 years, right? Let's take a look at this and let's do MOUs and do everything that we need to do to 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 put the metrics Uh, and the data and all that we're doing behind this effort, and let's come back and talk about it.
2: I love it. Well, thank you, Gerald, for coming and sharing. You know, I love to dream together about what could be, um, but I also, you know, I'm a mom, so we've got to actually do it. So I'm excited about what the future holds um, for you and for our city because of people like you.
3: Thank you both. This is awesome. I loved it.
1: Yeah, we thank you for your leadership and look forward to continuing the work uh, together. And so, as always, we are seeking the common ground for the common good. I'm Taylor Doe.
2: And I'm Scotia Moore.
1: And this is the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. See you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. Please share the show with your friends and family. It really helps us to get the conversation out to more people. This podcast is a production of United Voice Oklahoma, one of the initiatives of the Stronger Together Movement and is produced by OKC Good. This current season is made possible by the generous support of the Oklahoma City Black Justice Fund.